Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land that was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pashan. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold is that in, of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for, that, for the man that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is God's word. You may be seated. We are uh, in the midst of a, a series of sermons on the beginning chapters of Genesis that we are calling What's Wrong with This World. We're trying to understand what we're dealing with and, and hope uh, to understand and engage with the world in the right way. I have two goals in preaching this series at this time. One is I want to help us Christians to get re-rooted in the biblical worldview and find unity 
during a turbulent time in our culture. We all have blind spots, and the scriptures are able to expose them and heal them and allow us to fill the gaps in our worldview, and that's one of my goals. My second goal is I want to help those of you who are not church people, you're not religious people, and I hope that you are open at least to consider Christianity, and so if you are, I'm hoping to give you a clear picture of what the Bible teaches. Now, whatever I am saying, I'm not saying because I've always believed it, because I grew up thinking these things and just didn't know any different. That's not my story. I grew up in the Soviet Ukraine, as many of you know, and I grew up in a thoroughly secular society. And so whatever I believe now, I have come to believe that. You see, I changed my mind. I have examined other worldviews, and I have discovered that the biblical worldview is valid, is helpful, it makes sense. And so as you listen to me talk about these things, and some of these things will undoubtedly sound strange to you, and still sound strange to some of us. But what I'd like you to do, if you're not a church person, I'd like you to consider whether Christianity makes sense based on your experience, your reason, your emotions, your existential longings. Does it make sense? Does it make sense more than other views that you have heard, that you have adopted? And is it helping you? Does it give you resources to deal with what we're dealing with today in our culture? And of course, I'm not going to be able to address everything. I understand that. Not everything in this text and not everything in our culture today. So I encourage you to ask questions, both in the church. If you hear me say something today and you're like, I'm not sure what he meant, I'm not sure it's biblical, please, let's talk. Let's continue these conversations. And if you're not a church person, please email me. My email is on, online on, on our website. You can contact me on Facebook. I would love to dialogue with you directly. Or if you want to submit a question, we're going to do an online question and answer time next Tuesday. Not this coming Tuesday, but next Tuesday at 7 o'clock on Facebook. So we're hoping to, to really wrestle with these issues. I'm not just preaching to the choir. I really want engagement both from the church and from those of you who are interested to see if Christianity fits our experience. Okay, enough with the introduction. So we considered uh, the issue of, of purpose, the problem of purpose last week, and today we're looking at the problem of humanity. And by that I mean, uh, what does it mean to be human? What is the essential human nature? Are humans, are we unique in any way? Are we different from other forms of life? Or are we just like animals or plants that were also uh, part of this world? Now, to answer these questions, I'd like us to look at one radical idea from our text, one radical idea, and then three radical implications. So one radical idea, and then we'll work through three radical implications. The radical idea I'm talking about is the biblical teaching that humanity is made in God's image. We are made in the image of God. Last week we read Genesis 1 verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. 
So this is the statement, this is what the Bible teaches, that we are made in God's image. All human beings, male and female, young and old, we're all made in God's image. And then this idea is worked out in chapter 2, which we'll look at today, and in the rest of the scriptures. What makes us unique, what makes us human, is God's image in us. That's what the Bible teaches. Now, what does that mean? Well, in the simplest terms, it means that humanity reflects God. We reflect who God is. We reflect His nature, His character. We are not God, but in many ways we are like Him by design. God made us this way. We are like Him. In fact, we are uniquely like Him. There's nobody else in creation, no other being, no other creature that is reflecting God in the way that we reflect God. Only human beings bear God's image. Now let's look how this idea of God's image is portrayed in Genesis 2. Look at verse 7 with me if you're following in your Bibles. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. This is how one commentator uh, comments on it. He says, the two verbs balance. Formed expresses the relation of craftsman to material with implications of both skill and a sovereignty which man forgets at his peril. While breathed is warmly personal with the face-to-face -face intimacy of a kiss and the significance that this was an act of giving as well as making, and self-giving at that. Even at our making, the pattern God so loved that He gave is already visible. We're not only designed and fashioned with divine skill. We are given life through the self-giving love of a personal God. That is what separates humanity from other forms of life. That is what makes us unique. We are created in an intimate relationship with God. We reflect Him because He is close to us, breathing life into humanity. In that sense, we can say that we were created to be loved and to love. Now, we read in our call to worship Jesus' explanation what the, the greatest commandment or the two greatest commandments are. It is to love God and to love others. That is a working out of the image of God in us. We were made by God who is love. We were made out of love and we were made to be loved and to love. Now, look what happens after Adam is created in verses 16 and 17. God allows Adam to eat of every tree in the garden except for one. And if he does, he will experience death, God promises. Why is God commanding that? It seems arbitrary, and, and, and a lot of us have wrestled with this idea. God makes a perfect human being, and right away he tells him, these are the rules. If you step out of bounds, you will die. Why is God doing that? He's doing that because human beings have the innate capacity to love. And that love 
is to be exercised and developed in making moral decisions. In other words, for Adam to truly live and not die, that meant to love God. And so he needs to make choices that develop and affirm his love for God. This is actually a life-giving commandment because God is directing Adam to love him more, to express his love for God through choices, through decisions, through moral decisions, through obedience. Obedience to God's commandment not to eat from one particular tree is an expression of love to God. Now, please, let's put it in context. God says, all of these trees are available to you, but one is not. It's yes everywhere, and it's one no. Why? To help Adam love God better, to develop that affection, to shape it, to direct it. This is what God is doing. So by obeying God, Adam loves him, and he lives out his essential human nature. Now, what happens next? Verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. It's not good for Adam to be alone because he is made to love. You see? That's the reason. And he needs another human being to have a relationship with. We're made, the image of God gives us the capacity to love. We're created to be loved and to love. And so God right away says we need to create other people. We need to create opportunities for Adam to express this love to others. Now when you read, I will make a helper fit for him, or a, a help meet for him, or a help mate, right? This is some of the older translations. Put it this way. There is a hint of inferiority here. That's not in the text. What the text is saying, and I will translate it, is God says, I will make an ally like him. An ally, a partner like him. That's just as legitimate of a translation. If you look at the word helper in Scripture, it is most commonly used in the Old Testament to describe God. God that comes as a help in battle. God that comes as an ally in struggle. That's what that word means. And so what God is actually saying here is, Adam, we need to make a person that will partner with you, that will be your ally, that will be your helper in that sense as you rule over creation, as you express the love that I have given you, as you love me and as you love others. This is what God is doing. This is God's design. And he says it has to be a person like you. It has to be somebody who corresponds to your nature, which of course we know from Genesis 1 that male and female, he made them in his image. So God makes a woman out of the flesh of the man. God makes her who bears God's image. So God is making her. God is creating her. This is not a secondary creation. God is creating her, but he makes her, creates her by using Adam's body. And from now on, every other human being is going to be made by God out of a woman's body. Do you see what God is doing here? God is connecting the first two people. 
in the closest possible relationship of love. And by that, he sets a course for humanity. We are supposed to live in loving God and loving each other. We're supposed to give life to each other. We're supposed to be partners and allies in our rule over creation. The point here is that they are such in an intimate relationship. They become so close to each other that Bible calls it one flesh union. The one who was made out of the flesh of the man is returning into that, once again, that union of the flesh. And yes, there are sexual connotations here for sure. I will just say let's table the topic of sex until further weeks, okay? I won't comment at all on it, but I will do a whole sermon on the problem of sex. But here we see this intimate, close relationship between the man and the woman. It says that they are naked and not ashamed. Now, It's unimaginable for us to be naked and unashamed. Now, many of us have tried that, right? We've created communities of naked people who are attempting to be unashamed. But how can you live unashamed if you have things to be ashamed of? We hide things from each other. Of course we do that because there are things to be hidden in us. But this is before everything was broken. This is a complete and pure image of God that is based on God's love to them and their love to God and their love for each other. And so they have nothing to be ashamed of. There's nothing to hide. So they can be naked, completely open, completely vulnerable, completely honest with each other. This is how the image of God is worked out in this first relationship. Now this is the radical idea of the image of God that the essence of human nature is the image of God, is the reflection of God deliberately put in us. And so we are unique in that. There's no other creature like that in creation that was made specifically to reflect God and because God is love to reflect and practice His love. We are made to love Him and to love other human beings and being made in God's image is what actually makes us human there is a community I read about in South India that are making these very special very expensive very labor uh, involved mirrors they're made out of metal not made out of glass they're made out of metal and my limited knowledge of science (laughs) helps me understand it in this way, that metal is a front reflective surface in the mirror, which means that when you're using a glass, you're putting something dark behind the glass, and that's where your image is actually reflected from. It's in the back of the glass. But metal, rightly polished and the right kind of metal, is allowing you to see yourself as best as you can because it's reflected right off of the surface of the metal. Now, these are precious things and and only certain artisans know how to make them, and they're very expensive. And of course, because they're very expensive, there's a lot of fakes. And so if you're a tourist going to that part of India, you are likely to be offered a mirror that looks exactly like what you want to get, but is a fake. And they say that the only way an amateur is able to tell whether it's a fake or the genuine thing is by breaking it. That's how you learn. 
because the proper metal that is used, the secret that's, that's held very closely as to what elements, what components go into that metal, is very brittle. And so when I apply that to our lives, there's this beautiful picture of God's image in Genesis 1 and 2. Beautiful picture of humanity, beautiful picture of who we're supposed to be. And yet, we live in a broken world. And we are learning what humanity is through brokenness, through seeing the image of God fractured and marred and damaged. And so in order to understand, in the midst of brokenness, what humanity really is, not just reading the Bible, but actually work out what it means in our lives, we have to make these three radical implications. The first implication is philosophical. Okay, would you please give me 10 minutes, okay? Give me 10 minutes, I'm going to make you think, okay? I'm going to push you a little bit, and you're welcome to go back. My notes are going to be posted this afternoon. If you want to go over some of these quotes again, please do that. But I want to push you a little bit intellectually, because I want you to see the inconsistency in the secular worldview, okay? Here's the philosophical implication of the image of God in humanity. The uniqueness and worth of every human being is a distinctly biblical idea. I want you to hear me that when we talk about the dignity of the human being, of every human being, when we talk about human rights, when we talk about the autonomy of the individual, these are biblical ideas, distinctly biblical ideas. A society that is separated from Scripture a culture that neglects the Christian worldview does not have a solid philosophical foundation for valuing human life and promoting human rights. This is why, if you look at the global movements, the organizations that are promoting human rights are primarily Western organizations, or they're or they're shaped by Western ideas that were shaped by the Christian worldview. This is why, because the philosophical roots of ideas like human rights are actually in the Bible, in Scripture. Now, what I don't mean here is to say that you have to be a Christian to stand for human rights. That's not what I'm saying. There are many secular people, many atheists, who are passionate for human rights, and they love people sometimes better than Christians love people. What I'm saying is that they're actually being inconsistent in their worldview. Now, I know this is a big statement, and I, I want to I make sure I give you the basis for what I'm saying. So I'm going to quote from several secular thinkers. And recently, some secular thinkers have explicitly connected the idea of human dignity and human rights to the influence of the Bible. For example, German philosopher Jürgen Habermas says, and I'm sorry this is a philosopher speaking, okay? So I will interpret that, but this is what he says. I want you to hear it from him. He is, he's a secular philosopher. He's not a believer. He's not a religious person. He says, universalistic egalitarianism, from which sprang the ideals of freedom and a collective life and solidarity, the autonomous conduct of life and emancipation, the individual morality of conscience, human rights and democracy, 
is the direct legacy of the Judaic ethic of justice and the Christian ethic of love. This legacy, substantially unchanged, has been the object of continual critical appropriation and reinterpretation. To this day, there is no alternative to it. And in light of the current challenges of a post-national constellation, we continue to draw on the substance of this heritage. Everything else is just idle postmodern talk. Now, I don't know if you can understand what he's saying because he wants to say it in a most complex way, but what he means is that as not a religious person, not a Christian, he's a secular thinker, thinker, he's saying that such values that we all hold dear as freedom and human rights, morality of conscience and others cannot be upheld without the legacy of the biblical teaching. Now let me give you another example. This is one of the new atheists. There's a group of writers that were writing in the 2000s and 2010s that are called the new atheists. And Christopher Hitchens, the late Christopher Hitchens, said this in 2011. How do I know there are such things as human rights? I don't. I don't know there are such things. Our grounding for human rights is about as tenuous as our position as a primate species on a rather dodgy planet. Did you hear what he says? Our grounding for human rights is about as tenuous as our position as a primate species on a rather dodgy planet. In other words, if we believe that humanity is only dust, so no breath of life from God, just dust, just the material, and thus is no different in essence from any other form of life like animals or plants, how can we affirm the value and dignity of every human being? There's no philosophical basis for it. Now, of course, very few secular people live consistently with their view of humanity. Very few people value animals as much as they value human beings, even though it's consistent with their view. Now, the reason that most of us can't do that is because even if we reject the idea of the image of God, we cannot eradicate it in ourselves or in others completely. So we love even when it is intellectually indefensible. We can't help but love because we are made in the image of God who loves. So we're coming to this philosophical dilemma. And many secular people today are acknowledging that, that we want to love our neighbor. We want to help those who need help. We want to uphold human rights in any arena of life. And yet, there's no intellectual basis for doing that. But our hearts passionately want to engage in that way. Why? My answer is, the Bible's answer is, because we're made in God's image. And whether you believe it or not, you're made to be loved, so you seek that love in your life, and you are made to love, so you're going to express it in terms of justice, care for others, and upholding human rights. Now, my last quote in this section 
Sarah Irving Stonebreaker is a senior lecturer in modern European history at Western Sydney University in Australia. Now I'm giving you the titles and some of the backstory of, of some of these people because I want to object to the view that Christianity is a religion for uneducated, unthinking people. These are people who are, who are wrestling with Christian ideas, who are educated, smart, they're well-trained in reasoning, in logic, they understand what's at stake. Some of them are philosophers, others are scholars in other categories, other fields. But it seems to be that many are dealing with what I'm describing today. So Irving Stonebreaker says, uh, she got her PhD at Cambridge. Cambridge, she, she was a secular person, grew up in a secular home, went to Cambridge and was elected after getting her PhD to a junior research fellowship at Oxford. And listen to what happened to her at Oxford. She shares her, her journey from atheism to Christianity. She says, there at Oxford I attended three guest lectures by world-class philosopher and atheist, public intellectual Peter Singer. Singer recognized that philosophy faces a vexing problem in relation to the issue of human worth. The natural world yields no egalitarian picture of human capacities. What about the child whose disabilities or illness compromises her abilities to reason? Yet, without reference to some set of capacities as the basis of human worth, the intrinsic value of all human beings becomes an ungrounded assertion a premise which needs to be agreed upon before any conversation can take place. She says, I remember leaving Singer's lectures with a strange intellectual vertigo. I was committed to believing that universal human value was more than just a well-meaning conceit of liberalism. But I knew from my own research in the history of European empires and their encounters with indigenous cultures that societies have always had different conceptions of human worth, or lack thereof. The premise of human equality is not a self-evident truth. It is profoundly historically contingent. I began to realize that the implications of my atheism were incompatible with almost every value I held dear. This was the beginning of her conversion. An atheist, a scholar, grew up in a secular home, no influence of religion, completely comfortable with her atheistic worldview, is listening to one of the leading atheists talk about human worth and recognizes that I can't live like that and remain an atheist. This is a philosophical problem. The image of God, the teaching of the Bible on the image of God and the worth of every human being is an incredible problem for a secular person. That's the first implication. The second implication is cultural, and that's where I'm going to make you feel uncomfortable, okay? The image of God, this idea of the image of God, worked out in love empowers us to navigate the complexity of our culture with great clarity. This idea, if it's worked out in love, enables us to navigate the complexity of our culture with great clarity. Now here's the clarity that it brings. We, people of the Christian worldview, 
if we are consistent with the Christian worldview, we're consistent with the Bible, we are to uphold the value and dignity of human life wherever we find it. And we are to oppose all attempts at dehumanizing any person. Let me say that again. This is the biblical implication for our behavior, for our engagement with the culture from the image of God doctrine. We are to uphold the value and dignity of human life wherever we find it. And we are to oppose all attempts, all attempts at dehumanizing any person. Now, this is what the teaching of the image of God means in practice. So a Christian living consistently according to the biblical worldview upholds the worth and dignity of every person, including the unborn, people in the womb, human beings made in God's image who are yet to be born, okay? The oppressed, anybody who's been dehumanized and made less than someone else. The exploited, those who were used, who are being used, not loved, but being used for other purposes. Those with disabilities, those of an advanced age. So we oppose abortion. We oppose oppression. We oppose abuse of all sorts. We oppose domestic violence. We oppose euthanasia. Christians are against abortion because we are for human worth. We are against human trafficking. We are against racial oppression and exploitation. We are for adoption. We are interested in education and healthcare and judicial system and economic inequalities and prison reform because they affect the lives and potentials of image bearers. We are for justice for all groups of people and all individuals. We think human life is valuable because of its intrinsic value, meaning innate, it's built in. Before you do anything, you are valuable because you are made in God's image. And not because of what this individual can contribute to society. We are against pornography because it dehumanizes people and sees image bearers as objects of lust and not love. We are particularly concerned to uphold and defend the dignity of those who have been marginalized and deemed unimportant. The Bible gives us the categories of the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant. But we must expand these categories to include anyone whose dignity is put in question. These are all implications on our lives, on our engagement with the culture, on how we treat others. All of these are implications of the image of God in us, the biblical teaching of the image of God. The list that I just gave you is not exhaustive. I haven't mentioned a lot of things I probably should mention, but I can't mention everything. I can't think of everything. But this list, though not exhaustive, it's not complete, it is utterly consistent with the biblical teaching of the image of God. So what I'm encouraging you to do as a Christian, and most of you, if not all of you who are here at church during a pandemic, right? You're here for a reason. You affirm the Bible. You think you want to live according to the Christian view. And so what I'm encouraging you to do is I'm encouraging you to work out these implications in your life. 
and to live consistently with the Christian worldview as you address cultural and social and political issues. Now, here's the complexity. This is where it gets hard to figure stuff out, right? We have the clarity of upholding the dignity and the worth of every human being and opposing any attempt to dehumanize anybody. That's the clarity. The complexity is that we live in a culture that doesn't keep this list together. I gave you the list, but in our culture, that's not one list, that's two lists. And so, for example, concern for the unborn, preservation of family and marriage as a place of a happy home, right? These are considered to be conservative values. Concern for the poor, concern for racial justice are considered to be liberal values. And our culture pushes us to pick the side. It tells us you have to be here or here. You cannot be part conservative, part liberal. You need to be consistent. You need to be all conservative or all liberal. So you need to affirm pro-life issues, but then you can't really deal with racial stuff. You can't really deal with the poor. Or if you affirm these things on this end, then you can't say anything about abortion. Now that's what our culture does. That's what the world does, because the world is not about love, the world is about power. And so every camp is going to use, harness that power, harness that passion, and say, now you're completely with us, and we will win this battle. But the Bible pushes us to say, I don't have to pick a camp. I don't have to pick a side. Why do I have to do that as a Christian? Why do I need to submit to the world's idea of how the cultural discourse happens? I'd rather fall back on the Bible. I'd rather say, what are the implications of the image of God for this particular issue? And I will agree who I'll agree with. And maybe that's the same people I will disagree with on another issue. So here's the controversial statement. Every Christian is a little bit conservative and a little bit liberal. We're all a little bit country and a little bit rock and roll, you know. <laughs> we, don't, we don't fit. We're not supposed to fit. Because the Bible stands against the world. The world cannot figure out the complexity. Only the Bible can give us the nuanced approach where we would say, yes, this is complex. But I was made to be loved by God. And so I am secure in who God made me and what he thinks of me as a Christian. And now I'm going to release the love that I have towards my neighbor, even towards those that I disagree with. And so I will oppose any view that dehumanizes someone else. And I will uphold any view that affirms the worth and value of every human being. Now we know that in the world, in many parts of our culture, the way power is gained is by presenting one group as being better, more moral, more intellectually sophisticated, right? Stronger than other groups. And so join our group if you can. And so we know that it happens through dehumanizing the opponent or those we tend to exclude from our circles. We know this is how it works because that's how power works. Love includes, power excludes to build up the power base. Now let me quote from Jeff Scoop, 
Jeff Scoop was he's a former director of the largest neo-Nazi organization in America. And he explains now from his vantage point of having left that organization, having seen the light, right? Now he explains to us how they operated. This is what he said. He said, we blocked off in our minds those of us that were in the movement, that were in this extremist movement, whether it's the Klan, whether it's the nationalist, socialist movement of any other white nationalist. We block out the humanity of others. That's the strategy. To gain power, I'm going to block out, block off the humanity of my opponents. Christians who believe in the image of God cannot dehumanize anyone. It's impossible for a Christian to think that there are people who are less valuable than we are because we believe that everybody is made in God's image. And that is why any perception of one group of people as intrinsically superior to another is unbiblical. Now listen to Christian author Rebecca McLaughlin. She says, read the New Testament and you will find that trying to marry biblical Christianity to white-centric nationalism is like trying to marry a cat to a mouse. One is designed to hunt the other, not mate with it. She says that certain things are incompatible in the Christian worldview. And when any group, whether it's along racial lines, ethnic lines, economic lines, political opinion lines, educational lines, whatever lines you want to take, but when one group says, we are better, we are more advanced, we are superior to these other groups, the Christian has to say, it can't be. It's impossible. It's inconsistent with what God tells us about the nature of humanity. To be human is to be valued. That's an intrinsic dignity that belongs to all of us just by virtue of being human. Now let me now address a very controversial issue head on, okay? I want to show you that the Christian worldview has the resources to navigate even the most complex cultural realities with tremendous clarity. The problem is not that we don't have the resources or the ideas in Scripture or the principle in Scriptures that, that we need. The problem is we're not applying them consistently. Okay? We're in a season of tremendous social unrest. And just like you, I watch television, I listen to the radio, I read the newspapers, I hear what is being said in the culture. And what I'm hearing is especially from politicians, from leaders of various cultural movements. I'm hearing you have to take a side. Some tell us to side with the police, support law and order in our society. Others tell us to side with the protesters who are calling for a more just society. What is a Christian to do? Here's the biblical response. We are to affirm and support the role of the police as a God-designed institution to help protect the value and quality of every human life. Eliminating police is not the answer. 
However, we also recognize that the police are to be held accountable when they are not performing their role and are in any way treating individuals or groups of people in a dehumanizing way. We're also to affirm and support the pursuit of justice in our society. We are to stand with the protesters on all legitimate issues of injustice. However, we are also to recognize that rioting and looting is not the answer. When the protesting against injustice creates more injustice by putting people in danger and treating them less than human, we are to oppose that strategy. We are to grieve the loss of human life on both sides. Both law enforcement officers and protesters are made in God's image and are equally human and equally valuable in God's view of humanity. Do not succumb to one camp's rhetoric and pledge your blind support to one leader or movement. We have the resources to be much more nuanced than the politicians and cultural warriors have us believe. Many Christians have unfortunately adopted the us versus them approach to engagement in the culture. I do not think it is biblical or helpful. We are to practice the biblical idea of love your neighbor. The concept of a culture war is ultimately unbiblical. Now, I want to be careful how I speak about this because it's a nuanced and complex issue. It's not unbiblical in its diagnosis of what's wrong in the culture. That's what we're doing in this series. We're saying this is what's wrong with the world. But I think the culture war approach is unbiblical in its prescription of solutions. Now listen to Christian author and cultural commentator Cap Stewart. He says, the problem with the culture war approach is not that it rightly discerns opposition from the world. The problem is in the chosen mode of response. Some might well ask, but shouldn't we oppose the evils being spread in our society? The answer is a resounding yes. Engaging with and even confronting our culture is a legitimate form of being salt and light in the world. Again, the deciding factor is the nature of our engagement. Are we seeking to destroy or to rescue our opponents? When we correct or oppose or reprove, is it with the goal of winning the conversation or winning our neighbor? Do we confront others in the right spirit? Now this is the money quote from this article. We are not at war with our ideological opponents. We are at war for them. I'll read that again. We are not at war with our ideological opponents. We are at war for them. He goes on to say, to engage with their culture in a militant and hostile manner is to forsake our role as ambassadors. It's trading our diplomatic visas for military dog tags. It's trading the armor of God for the fig leaves of human striving. 
It is a capitulation to earthly wisdom attempting to fight for the kingdom of God on the world's terms. As one of our hymns says, our call to war, to love the captive soul, but to rage against the captor. And with the sword that makes the wounded whole, we will fight with faith and valor. I'm giving you a lot of things to think about, and I realize that. I want to continue this conversation, okay? Talk to me. Talk to each other. Let's work out the biblical implications of how we are to engage in this complex and turbulent time in our culture. I'll finish with the final implication briefly, and this implication is personal. The idea of God's image defining humanity is not just an idea. It is a truth about who you are. You are made in God's image. I am made in God's image. You were made in love. You were made to be loved, and you were made for love. Do you know who you are? I don't think apart from God we can really understand what humanity really is, what it means to be human. You are incredibly valuable to God because you are bearing His image. It is His life that He breathed in your nostrils and He gave you life. That's His life. That's the divine life. And because you bear His image, you are incredibly valuable to Him. In fact, we know exactly what God thinks your worth is. Did you know that? God can tell us and the Bible can tell us exactly how much you are worth as a human being. The Bible says that we were bought with a price. 1 Corinthians 6.20 We were bought with a price, which means that God decided that He could pay something to buy us, to rescue us, to redeem us. This idea of redemption, buying us back, or ransom, giving something in exchange for our lives, is all over the Scriptures. It's not just in the New Testament, it's all over the Scriptures. That God values us in a certain way, and He says, I will pay to get them back, to bring them back to me. So what is our price? What did God pay to bring us back to Himself and back into His love? The price is the life of Jesus Christ. That's the price. That's exactly how much you are worth. God says, I will become human, and then I will die. I will suffer, and I will die. I will give my life to bring my people back to me. And so Jesus, God of God, light of light, completely divine, right? Becomes completely human, actually bearing God's image in His humanity and gives His life in exchange for ours. We are ransomed by the life of Jesus Himself. Jesus, when He died on the cross, He was dying to affirm your worth and to restore the image of God that is in you. He's dying to repair it, to renew it, to fix it. And next week we'll talk about what the problem is, what sin has done to our image. But today, we just recognize that we are valuable to God. No matter what it is in your life that you've done, no matter how, how marred is the image of God is in you, 
no matter how dirty or ashamed or how much you cover yourself up, no matter how evil you are, God looks at you and says, they are worth the price of my son's life to bring him back. Now this kind of love, this kind of love transforms you. It heals you. It changes you. It is absolutely revolutionary. Listen to Sarah Irving Stonebreaker again, this Oxford convert that I mentioned earlier. The atheist that has recognized that her view was inconsistent and finally she came to be a Christian. She said, Christianity was also, to my surprise, radical. Far more radical than the leftist ideologies with which I had previously been, been enamored. The love of God was unlike anything which I expected or of which I could make sense in becoming fully human in Jesus. God behaved decidedly unlike a God. Why deign to walk through death's dark valley or hold the weeping limbs of lepers if you are God? Why submit to humiliation and death on a cross in order to save those who hate you? God suffered punishment in our place because of a radical love. This sacrificial love is utterly opposed to the individualism, consumerism, exploitation, and objectification of our culture. So I'll leave you with this and then we'll take communion. When Jesus was beaten and bleeding, Pilate brought him out for the crowds to see. Do you remember what Pilate said? Prophetically, he said, Behold the man. Behold the man, because in Christ, the image of God, the humanity, the essence of humanity has been exhibited for the whole world to see. And yet, because of his great love for us, Jesus, the perfect human being, was dehumanized. And that image was marred and distorted. He was bleeding, he was broken, he was hurting. And when he died for us on the cross... He proclaimed that this is humanity. This is the path for humanity to be restored and to return to the image of God. Which is why Paul says that it is the image of Christ that is being renewed in us. So behold the man. This is the challenge. As you as a Christian, if you come to the table, you come to the Lord's table today, you take communion, behold the man the perfect God and the perfect human being that gave his life for you to show you how much he loves you and values you. If you're not a Christian, I plead with you today, behold the man, behold this Jesus that came to die for you to tell you just how valuable you are to God, how loved you are, and the potential to love that you have.